The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is my honor to welcome Mr. Bill Marler. He is a personal injury trial lawyer and national expert in foodborne illness litigation. I heard him speak at the Association of Healthcare Journalists meeting in Boston and was fascinated by his work. He and his partners and staff at Marler Clark, based in Seattle, Washington, have successfully represented tens of thousands of individuals in claims against food companies whose contaminated products have caused serious injury and death. Welcome, Bill. Thank you very much. How did you get into foodborne illness litigation? Well, I was a young associate just a few years out of law school at a big Seattle firm that primarily represented corporations, and I had carved out a little niche in the firm, not only doing work for big companies, but also representing injured people in cases where the firm didn't have a conflict, and I wound up getting some of the very early calls from people who were sick in the the Jack in the Box E. coli outbreak in January of 1993. And sort of by just sheer hard work, sort of pushed myself to the front of the group of lawyers who were handling those claims, basically by offering to do all the work, and you know wound up representing most of the severely injured children in that outbreak. And that was the beginning of working in food cases, and that's what I've been doing for the last 20 years. And what have you seen throughout your career in terms of foodborne illness outbreaks? Have you seen more? Are they coming faster and more furiously? You know, 30 years ago, maybe there was an outbreak, but it didn't seem like it was to the extent that it is. I mean, I look at your blog, the Marler blog, which I highly recommend, as well as Food Safety News. I also get recall notices from the FDA. And I find that barely a day goes by when there isn't something being recalled. What's going on? Well, there's two things happening simultaneously. One is the science is is way better today than it was 20 years ago, 10 years ago, and certainly 30 years ago. The science is better at surveillance. We have much better tools. So that's the one thing that I think that very important to understand is, is that we're better at catching outbreaks, and that's one thing. The other thing that's a truism is, is that because our food now is much more mass-produced than it was 20 and 30 and 40 years ago, when there's an outbreak, it's usually a bigger one, and crossing state borders or international borders, and therefore it's noticeable. 20, 30, 40 years ago, you know, people were getting sick and probably weren't noticing them because the surveillance wasn't there and the outbreaks were smaller. The other factor that you have to pay attention to is that the bugs that we're dealing with nowadays, not that they weren't around 20 or 30 years ago, but 
you know, we're dealing with a lot more antibiotic-resistant bugs in Campylobacter, Salmonella. And, you know, we're dealing with multiple different types of shigatoxin-producing E. coli that perhaps were around in small numbers, smaller numbers, 30 and 40 years ago. But because of intensive agriculture, specifically CAFOs, you know, it is a perfect breeding ground for bugs, and that's one of the things we're dealing with, and frankly, dealing with all of those things simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Let's go back and talk about specifically the jack-in-the-box case, because I thought was so interesting during your presentation in Boston was that you described a situation 10 years prior that it happened, it had been reported in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1983, so this is 10 years mm-hmm. prior, and a restaurant chain had been identified only as restaurant chain A, but it also involved E. coli 0157H7, which is right. a really dangerous strain. And tell me about that course of events because it's fascinating. Well, when the Jack in the Box case hit in 1993, much of what people were assuming was that, you know, it was something new and dangerous and terrible. And certainly it seemed like it was the beginning of something. And as I dug in to research it, I was shocked that, in fact, there had been an outbreak of in a fast food restaurant, which later was identified as McDonald's, not in the New England Journal of Medicine, but uh, actually got a little bit of press, but not very much, by an AP writer who's now retired, But it had happened 10 years earlier, and 40-plus people were sickened, some seriously, no deaths. And then there were a smattering of E. coli cases throughout the United States and in Canada that were linked to hamburger. But there was really no movement on the part of regulators, no movement on the part of the industry until the -the jack-in-the-box case hit. And a couple of interesting things, in addition to humans' ability to sort of ignore things that are coming at them. But one of the really fascinating facts about the Jack and case cases, what I was talking about earlier about surveillance, E. coli 0157H7, which is a nasty form of E. coli, was only a reportable illness in a handful of states, Washington being one of them. It was not a reportable illness in California. So when the Jack and the outbreak actually started to happen, which was in November of 1992, nobody knew about it. And had surveillance been in place in November of 1992, had E. coli 0157 been a reportable illness, that outbreak would have been caught in November. It would have been figured out that it was jack-in-the-box hamburgers, and the hamburgers that came to Seattle never would have been sent. And had that happened, I wouldn't be talking to you today. Mm-hmm. Well, the other situation was there had been a law that had been passed about the temperature that hamburgers needed to be cooked to. And for some reason, the -the jack-in-the-box didn't get the message. Am I remembering that correctly? You are, in part. The the interesting thing about it is that uh, Washington State was not only ahead of the game for reporting E. coli 0157 as a reportable illness, but also they increased 
regulated cook times for hamburger from 140 degrees to 155, but it was the only state in the nation that had that standard. And they did send out notifications to all restaurants, including national restaurant chains that had restaurants in the state of Washington, about the new cooking regulation. But Jack in the Box, frankly, took the bad position that it was going to go with the national standard and ignore the internal cooking temperature in Washington of 155. And they did it almost to their bankrupt peril. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm surprised that they actually remained in business because of the tremendous lawsuit that you actually right. served against them. Well, it was a, it's sort of another fortuitous fact in the Jack in the Box case is that about three months before the outbreak started in California in November, in about you know August of 1992, a new board member had come on to the Jack in the Box board who was an executive at an insurance company and looked at Jack in the Box's insurance coverage and said, you only have $10 million of insurance? That's ridiculous. And so they increased the insurance layer to $100 million. And Jack in the Box spent every penny of that in the litigation. Wow. So that's what saved them. Yeah. Well, since then, you've certainly gone on to cover other cases. And as I mentioned, both in your blog and in Food Safety News, there doesn't seem to be a slow day. One of the other cases you mentioned had to do with Adwala juice. And you mentioned this during your presentation, that Adwala tried to sell juice that was not pasteurized. Right. And they actually tried to sell it to the Army, didn't they? And the Army said they no. Did. Right. They, the Army had uh, has a very, and if you think about it, the, the Army, like, you know, even the Army, Navy, you know, or even the Air Force or astronauts, the last thing that the Army, Navy, Air Force needs as sick soldiers. Right. And, and uh, history is replete with more illnesses and more deaths caused by food conditions and other bacterial conditions than getting shot. And so, in fact, you know, Alexander the Great was suspected of dying of a foodborne illness, but that's, you know, history. So what the Army did was send a team of investigators to the Odwalla plant about six months before the E. coli outbreak that I became involved in that sickened about 50 people and killed a young child in Colorado. And the Army came there, looked at the plant, and tested it, and said, you know, your juice is not fit for human consumption. We're not going to buy it. And instead of taking that to heart, Odwalla chose to keep selling their unpasteurized juice to uh, pregnant women and children. And, you know, that outbreak cost them tens of millions of dollars and nearly bankrupted them as well. Now, did that all happen before they were owned by Coca-Cola? Yes. Okay. I mean, uh, Coca-Cola bought them out about a year or so after the outbreak. And I think the owners of Odwalla didn't become, certainly became millionaires anyway, but perhaps not as big of millionaires as they hoped to be. Mm-hmm. So now you're working on some very interesting things, such as you're representing uh, some of the individuals involved in the pink slime case. 
And that had to do not with foodborne illness per se, but with perhaps using the wrong terminology at the wrong time. Well, it's it is it's an interesting case, I think, from the point of view of what I think one of the truisms that I've learned in 20 years of litigation is is that transparency is really really important, and it's the companies that choose not to be transparent that I think wind up on the the wrong side of history. And Beef Products Inc. BPI was investigated as part of a E. coli outbreak in, uh, that occurred actually in 2007. I was doing an investigation as part of an outbreak that a young 20-year-old dancer became brain damaged and became a paraplegic. And the New York Times did a story on her, which uh, wound up getting Mike Moss to people surprised, but one of the things that we found in, in our investigation was that some of the meat that was used in the hamburger that Stephanie ate came from this company called BPI, and uh, in the process of investigating it, you know, out comes this email where a USDA investigator worker in the early part of the decade in 2001 coined the term in an email between himself and his boss as this stuff it looks like pink slime. And that came out in the 2009 expose by the New York Times and sort of perked there for a while and until other news organizations in 2012 noted that the McDonald's had stopped using the product and other people had stopped using the product and then it became a snowball effect. And, and it really came down to BPI not wanting to have their product labeled when it went into these hamburger products. And I think when you don't label things and you're not transparent, people assume the worst. And BPI's product was, you know, in my view, is no more or less safe than any other part of a hamburger. But the fact that it was unlabeled became a concern of the public. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Bill Marler. He's an accomplished personal injury and products liability attorney. And what makes him unique is his unique focus on litigating foodborne illness cases. Now, speaking of transparency, that leads me to my next issue, and that has to do with ag-gag bills. And there are several states right now that are looking at this legislation and If transparency is so important, and if there truly is nothing to hide, why would a state want to pass something like an ag-gag bill, which would prevent, you can call them whistleblowers, if you will, people from coming in and, say, videotaping and then reporting or showing that footage of what they saw going on in a factory? You know, I just, frankly, don't get these bills. I, I really don't. And the um, ostensibly what they're trying to do is hide the way the animals are killed and the way the animals are raised and the way the animals are treated. And you know, Mike Pollan in one of his books, I can't remember, I can't remember which one it was, but you know, the idea of you know having a, a slaughter plant with windows. So, you know, we can see what goes on there. We can understand what happens when, you know, animals are raised and animals are slaughtered and, and, and the conditions that they're raised under. 
I think that's just such a vitally important thing, and it's good for consumers to be connected to uh, farms, even if they're big ones, even if they're factory farms. And I think that's an important part of us understanding, you know, how it is that our food is made, mm-hmm. uh, and and also what kinds of protections we might want to have as we protect our own families in our own kitchens. But by hiding all this information from us and making, you know, transparency criminal, it just doesn't serve, in my view, it doesn't serve anyone's needs except those that want to hide behind this, which I think is just a false sense of security. Mm -hmm. What are your predictions? Do you think most of the states will pass the legislation? Um, Yes, I do. I mean, I, I think that... Unfortunately, primarily conservative legislators uh, are more interested in protecting powerful interests than they are in providing an open, free society. They may mouth the you know words of freedom and you know, democracy and things like that, but when it really comes down to it, they're not all that interested in it. And I think it doesn't, you know, it frankly just doesn't serve the interests of anyone to hide information from consumers. I agree. Um, I, I'm just a firm believer that more information is better, and even though it can sometimes be confusing and can be interpreted incorrectly, or but I think having more information out there to people, it's it makes for smarter consumers. Having more information makes the marketplace work better. That's you know one of the things that's you know it's it's if we're we're going to live in a capitalist society and and deal with market economies. One of the things that's important to do that is is that people know the facts so they can make decisions with their pocketbook. And the, when you hide information from consumers, the decisions that they're making, you know, are not based on reality. So mm-hmm. it's really a you know, a perverted way of running a capitalist economy. Yeah, you know what else I've noticed is that there seems to be a reluctance to be regulated by government. And when I read about cases where children are so horribly harmed by foodborne illness that could have been prevented by stricter regulation, I get frustrated by that attitude. And yet, we have a big food system to regulate, and it seems right. that you know we don't really have the resources to do it especially well. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you would talk to that issue a little bit. Well, first of all, regulations can be done badly, and regulators can be manipulated, and that does happen even now. There's a revolving door, you know, at uh, FDA, revolving door at USDA. And, you know, their powerful interests help make policy. And again, the, the important thing is, is that as long as that's transparent and consumers have sort of an equal right at the table, you know, that's going to be okay. One of the really interesting things about regulation is, you're correct, is that uh, companies tend to, their knee-jerk reaction is, is that I don't want to be regulated. Except they like to be regulated when it's to their economic advantage. And mm-hmm. and we've seen that in situations recently where you had industries that 
prefer not to be regulated, but yet stepping up and supporting the Food Safety Modernization Act. And that might seem counterintuitive, but what has happened over time is the lack of regulation, the lack of equal enforcement of those uh, regulations has created situations where, you know, a company that's run badly will have an outbreak and the price of all spinach drops really low or all peanuts drop really low or all tomatoes drop really low. And the vast majority of tomato growers and spinach growers and peanut growers look at that and go, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do to protect our market from, quote, unquote, bad actors? And so there's been some support from industry for these regulations. But it really is that, for the most part, I think you're correct, that most industries still chafe under the idea of some level of enforcement, but it really, in the long run, saves money. It really does. It saves money and it saves lives, I think, too. I want to let our listeners know, by the way, that your marlerblog.com site is excellent, and there are some short videos. There's one in particular of you giving a testimony to Congress about food safety legislation that I think everybody should should listen to that. It's excellent. So with regard to the Food Safety Modernization Act, it passed, but then we have this budget crunch where there really aren't any dollars to back up the enforcement of the law. Do you see that as well? I do. You know, and one of the one of the points, you know, I'd I'd like to sort of make about how important, you know, regulation is uh, in whatever form it is. Uh, the peanut outbreak, one of one of the many peanut outbreaks, but the peanut outbreak of 2009, the estimate loss to the industry and to broadly was nearly a billion dollars for one company that produces about produced about 2% of peanuts in this country. And how it got to be a billion was not because of the personal injury cases. Those were relatively small, probably 30 to 40 million for the injured and dead folks that happened in an outbreak. But the ripple effect of recall costs and lost sales in the peanut market and farmers' losses and uh, and all of that was that's how it became hundreds of millions and close to a billion dollars. So if you look at that and then you look at the cost of implementing the Food Safety Modernization Act, it was about it was about one point five billion dollars over five years. And you kind of scratch your head and think, hmm you know, if you just look at it from straight up economics, it is a wise investment for business to to do that, to tax themselves, to you know allow taxpayers to you know pay for that. But you know, we're in a odd period of time where taxes and paying for things is sort of a bad thing. And you know, we're more inclined to pay for wars that cost trillions and trillions of dollars and not tax ourselves to do it, and then we fall back and say, oh, we can't afford any of this stuff uh, when it comes to regulation of our food supply. And it it really doesn't make, you know, much sense 
you know, if you just even look at it from a financial perspective, it makes no sense. I know. I'm a big fan of full-cost accounting. And for those of us who work in public health, we spend a lot of time scratching our heads wondering, why don't we put more money into prevention? It just makes so much sense. So the more you learn about food safety, of course, the more difficult it becomes to eat out. And the more difficult it becomes to eat out with friends, right, because you want to start asking questions and you know, well, most people never invite me out over for dinner, and most people don't want to have dinner with me because uh, they'll go, have you ever sued this guy, or have you, what about this, or what about that product? And usually by the end of the evening, the only thing that seems safe is the wine. So. Exactly. Well, welcome to the world of, of a dietitian. It's, it's the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you, though, are there some foods that you have a hard time eating that maybe you might have bought at one time, but now you say, mm, not so much? You know, I, I well, there, there are certain foods like hamburger that are far safer in 2013 than they were in 1993. The, the, the meat supply is a much, much, much safer place today than it was 20 years ago. The number of E. coli cases linked to hamburger and red meat have fallen dramatically. And so on a, you know, on a likely basis, you know, red meat is much safer today than it was 20 years ago. I still have a hard time, you know, eating hamburger. Uh, and it's because I've had to deal with so many families and so many, you know, children who are sickened or die from eating it. It's just not an enjoyable experience for me, but one that's probably completely or nearly safe. Um, things that are, you know, on sort of the top list of things that, you know, Bill Marler doesn't consume or or urges people not to consume are sprouts uh-huh. uh, of any kind, uh, raw milk or raw or unpasteurized juice. Um, those are the things that you know are you know sort of the top of my list of things to be careful about. And uh, then there are a number of things that you know when it comes to you know being concerned like bag spinach, bag lettuce. Um, I think it's much safer to buy ahead and wash it yourself. Um, and, you know, cooking food properly and, you know, keeping your kitchen clean. I mean, there's a lot of things that, you know, consumers can do to protect themselves, you know, from uh, food producers. But, yeah, sprouts, probably the top of my list of things that I probably ate when I was in college but wouldn't eat today. Absolutely. Well, Bill, I want to thank you so much for your work, and I want to redirect again our listeners to your website because the www.marlerblog.com as well as Food Safety News is absolutely terrific. Do you want to leave our listeners with a charge? Well, I think the most important thing is to always urge uh, everyone you know, whether you're politicians or you're, or people you buy products from, that transparency is the most important thing in a democracy, and that comes full scale when you're, you know, dealing with the food supply. And, uh, you know, I think uh, supporting the press, supporting people who support transparency is the best thing we can do to protect ourselves. Well, I want to thank you so much for that message, and I want to thank you for your work again, and remind everyone that that the book that really described your career and getting into the details of the Jack in the Box outbreak is a book called Poisoned, the true story of the deadly E. coli outbreak that changed the way Americans eat. It was written by Jeff Benedict, and it goes to softcover 
paper back this month, May 2013. We've been speaking with Bill Marler. He is an accomplished personal injury and products liability attorney, and what makes him so famous and unique is his work litigating foodborne illness cases. Again, the website, www.marlerblog.com and Food Safety News. And in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you again for being my guest, Bill. Thank you very much. 